Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. I am your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. Today I have a special guest all the way from Italy, and his name is Skip Moen. Skip is an author, a professor, a photographer, and a business consultant. He has taught in at least four universities and has authored 10 books. He writes so much, but he has been writing every day for over 20 years. His website is skipmoen.com, but he writes today's word. So he writes either a Greek or Hebrew phrase, and he gives the meaning of it. And I think uh, he just told me that he has written over 9,000 word studies. So welcome. I so appreciate you being here because we're in such different time zones. So I thank you yes. for being thank here. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I'm, I hope that we'll have a conversation that people will find really useful. Yes, I'm sure. You have so much knowledge and so much. Um, I And I was explaining to Skip before we started recording, but I found him just by doing the word studies that I love to do, just looking up words and his site would often come up. And so then I became very interested and started reading more. Um, he has dozens and dozens of articles and and videos. And so you can um, download videos. Um, some of them are to purchase and then others you can find on on even YouTube. I have found you lecturing on YouTube. So, yeah, I don't know how that happened because typically I don't uh, release anything to YouTube, but there are places where I've been that they, you know, recorded the the lectures or the sessions and then put them on YouTube. So right. I can't I can't claim responsibility for the technical side of the YouTube thing. <laughs> That's right. It's true, but it's it's still it's still good. I mean, I've still learned from watching them and then I I would go back to your website and find um the whole series like sometimes I would just find bits and parts and then think well this isn't finished he didn't finish why didn't he finish and then I would find that it was just part of another series and so yeah, yeah. Um, that someone just recorded you want to tell us a little bit why you know like you have traveled all over the world and you've been on um, you've taught on cruises you were just explaining to me and you have another one coming up but um, why Italy right now in your life um, well, my wife's grandparents on both sides immigrated from Sicily in the early 1900s. Uh, and so we had been coming back and forth to Italy for many, many years, not because uh, we knew the family, but because we just felt a real connection there. We we actually went to the village where her grandfather on her mother's side came from and found his house, went to the graveyard, saw some of the names that she recognized. And um, when we got to the point where we thought, okay, it's time to really make a big move, um, Italy was the place that we both felt that, you know, it's got the culture, the history. My wife is a chef, so it's got the food, it's got the architecture. And for me, it's the next step from the ancient Middle East, you know, from the Hebrew Jewish roots. It's It's the next step in the development of Western civilization, because Virtually everything that happened um, since the first century pushes us toward the Roman Empire, and the West is still operating under the same paradigm that the Roman Empire operated on. So it's a great place for me because I can find in virtually every church that we visited in Italy some piece of the puzzle that helps me fill in, well, what really happened between the first century and, you know, the 21st century. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure that's really cool. My son is a history lover. So 
he's been to the Middle East and he, he still wants to go to that area, Rome and, and mm-hmm. um, all of Italy. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's just so interesting. And, um, but you have lived many places and you've been teaching, I don't know, for how many years? I mean, how long <laughs> have you been? Uh... Well, I'm old, so I've been at this for more than half a century. Um, wow. That you know, when when I think about where we live, I mean, the building across the street from us is more is older than the United States. The yeah. the church in where we live is more is more than a thousand years old. So wow. you know, I've just made a little tiny dent, but at least I've had the opportunity to experience um, not just visiting but living in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, uh, was a real impetus for me to search um, the scriptures to see what those cultures were like in the 10th century BCE, in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries BCE. Because if you don't understand what the people were experiencing when the prophets wrote or when Moses wrote the Torah... Um, then you can't understand why the the verses say what they what they say. They you know they weren't written for us. The Bible is not our book. Um, we've adopted it, but it was written for a Jewish population, an Israelite population, right. thousands of years ago. So the the choices of the words, the concepts that are involved, the paradigms are all very very old. And uh, to really understand what they meant means. You have to dig back and you know and look at what was happening at that time. Mm, that's so true because that's something that that I really wanted to bring out with this whole podcast. The entire like every guest, every every subject, it's it goes back for me. What did the original hearers and writers think about this? What did yeah, they absolutely. know about this? Um, because if we don't, we want to look at everything through the Western culture, even American culture yeah. as um, American church. And so um, it's, it's, it gets a little frustrating to me because I know that even, even a church I was in and, and not to put anybody down, but he thought of it as history. And he would say, well, Stephanie's going to give us a little background, little history on this subject. And, 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 in, but in my mind, it was not just history. It was why it meant what it meant. It was deeper. Yeah, there's a big difference between the application of the text and the exegesis of the text. Mm-hmm. The exegesis is what did the author mean when he wrote to the original, the original audience, right? So if I want to understand what happened on the Temple Mount, let's say in Acts chapter two, I can't read that from a Pentecostal perspective, because Pentecostalism wasn't part of the second of the first century, you know, uh, in, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But I need to say, okay, so wait a minute. Why were the people there? What were they doing? Why? Why did they understand the symbols that were happening? What was the event about for them? Right? Not what's the event about for me, but what did it mean to them? That, that's exegesis. Okay. Right. Application is okay. Now I've understood what it meant to them. Now let's see if it applies to me. Right. right. Unfortunately, yeah. most, uh, most of us in the, that have come from the Christian world have just heard application. We've heard application sermons over and over and over as though the text was written to us, but it wasn't. 
right? Even Paul's letters, they weren't written to us. So when he talks about, you know, the Corinthian issues over the dress of women, he's not talking about what happens in the contemporary Gucci uh, Versace market. He's talking about what happened in the first century when certain women dressed in certain ways that represented a symbolic arrangement in that culture, right? And so I can't just take that and apply it and say, okay, women should never wear earrings. They should never braid their hair in gold, et cetera, et cetera, because it was very different for them than it is for us. Right. So true. So good. So one of your books I have is Guardian Angel, and you also have a video series that goes with that. And it was funny because someone had recommended this book to me, but um, but I also saw the video series and thought how interesting it was. Of course, in the book, we're talking, and correct me, because I'll probably say this incorrectly, the Ezer Conegdo. Yeah, Ezer Conegdo is is the key phrase that shows up in the second chapter of Genesis when God himself says, oh, I'll need to make this companion, right? Right. And unfortunately, the the translation of Ezer Konegdo um, into English has been um, significantly modified <laughs> according to the expectations of the translator's culture, right? So um, so the most important thing, of course, is to figure out what does it really mean in Hebrew? Because that's mm-hmm. where it comes from. And what did it mean in Hebrew in the 14th century BCE, where the text comes from, right? Right. And so when you get translations like helpmate or assistant or companion, none of those actually capture what this phrase is about. Because um, the phrase itself only shows up in this story. And it's a very, very odd connection of words. It's actually a combination of two prepositions plus a noun, right? So it, it doesn't, it, it, even grammatically, it stretches you. It, it doesn't sound right even in Hebrew, right? Um, but it's really, really important to understand why God says this and why Adam doesn't. Because there's a huge difference in perspective between the way God viewed the creation of the woman and the way Adam receives God's blessing of the woman in his life. And we can right. talk about that if you want. Oh, move on. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. It's good. It's good. All right. So let's start with Ezer Konegdom. Okay. So Ezer comes from a verb that means uh, basically to help, but it has a military overtone. It's so it's to bring reinforcements, to assist, to um, provide leadership, to encourage, it's all that. And in fact, if you look at the way the word is used in the rest of scripture, you'll discover that God is the Ezer of Israel. So you can now think of all the things that God does for Israel as the sort of umbrella of this word, right? So God is the nourisher, he's the sustainer, he's the protector, he's the provider. He's also the one who chastises, he's the one who disciplines, He's the one who brings um, instruction. He, all that kind of stuff is under this umbrella is there, right? If you look at the at the verb and, and the way it's, the noun is used, you'll see that all through scripture that that this big, broad umbrella concept is found in this particular noun, okay? But it's combined here with connecta, which is a really odd thing. As I said, it's two prepositions. One that means to come toward you and one that means to go away. Mm. <laughs> so how do you get, how do you 
how do you marry these two words? So what basically the, the phrase is saying is the nourisher, provider, protector, sustainer is the one who comes at you, comes toward you, close to you, and the one who withdraws from you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so this has been very puzzling for a long time. Uh, obviously, Christian translations, helpmate or whatever, are completely up, off target. But right. the rabbis actually struggled with this a long time. And one of the ancient commentators, rabbinic commentators said, ah, okay, here's what it means. When a man is doing the things that God intends him to do, when he's following the path, the woman draws close to him to reinforce what God is doing in the man's life, to provide him with, with uh, sustenance, nourishment, encouragement, etc., when the man is not doing what God wants him to do in his life, the woman withdraws. And as a result, he recognizes in this, in this companionship relationship, the red light, green light of the relationship. Okay. So right. if I'm doing what God wants, my, my companion, my, my wife draws closer. God causes that relationship to grow. And I am encouraged because I have the nourishment that I need from my wife to continue to walk in God's ways. If I withdraw from God's ways, the distance grows in the relationship because the wife is connected in a kind of metaphysical way to a radar about God. And if I find that my relationship as a male if I find as a husband that my relationship is, is getting colder, then I should be asking myself, wait a minute, that's a sign that she is withdrawing because I'm not following exactly what God wants me to do. So the woman becomes the semaphore signal for my life, right? I look right. at I look at my relationship with her and I say, oh, is it getting better? Great. You know, God's on my side. Is it not getting better? Oh, wow, I need to stop and say, hey, what's going on here? Because she's the radar of my life, okay? Now, that means, of course, that the woman plays an essential, vital, and irreplaceable role in the marriage. No one else can do this, right? Right. So the husband who thinks that the wife is there to assist him in what he does misses the point. She's not there as his assistant. She's there as his spiritual guide to tell to to indicate, even in the physical relationship, is he on track or not on track? He's a you know, <laughs> you could say uh, husbands are are fairly dense. <laughs> they don't get it right away, right? So God said, "Oh my gosh, it's not good for this guy to try to figure it out on his own. It's not good for God. It's not good for man to be alone." Right. Right. And the word there is really, really important because it doesn't mean to be single. It means to be solitary. It means to not have the presence of some other person who will who will become my my guidepost. Right. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when Jacob crosses the brook, it says and he crossed the brook alone. So it doesn't mean that he. You know, he didn't have any companionship. It means that he was existentially solitary. He, there was there was no connection in his life. So God says, uh, by the way, after God says that he's created everything good in the first chapter, then he says, oh, whoop, sorry, made a mistake. 
It's not good for man to be alone. And of course, what he means is it's not good for man to have this solitary existence where he has no, no human connection that that's a feedback loop for him. Okay. So God creates the feedback loop. And the feedback loop is the woman who is just like him, same constitution, same you know, divine responsibility, same breath of, of God's life, same animation, but who is not like him. So like him, but not like him, right? Close, but away, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you need that because I used, I used to tell in my lecture, you know, uh, there's one person in my life that I absolutely get along with 100% of the time. It's the guy I see in the mirror. Mm-hmm. He never tells me I'm wrong. He never disagrees with me. <laughs> Right. He always affirms whatever I want to do, right? We're in absolute perfect harmony, mm-hmm. okay? But unfortunately, that perfect harmony is just a reflection of myself. So right. it doesn't actually help me grow because there's never any challenge to me. There's never any um, any need for me to rethink what I'm doing. I need the woman in my life who becomes not not a mirror. She's not a mirror image of me. She's another part of what it means for me to to struggle to understand what it is that God wants. And fortunately, she's uh, right there, right there in front of me saying, "Okay, wait a minute, green light or red light. And so that was the idea. And from that, by the way, you should know that it was my wife who titled this book. Right. I think I read that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The title came from her. (laughs) And my title was was considerably more controversial, and she said, "No, no, you can't have that kind of title. You need this yeah. one." And she's and she was absolutely right. You see, here's here's the interesting part that if you read the way that God created the woman, you find uh, some amazing things. First, it's the only ancient cosmology, the only creation story in the ancient world that includes a woman at all. The Hebrew account, okay. None of the other accounts include a woman because in the other accounts, women are just property. Right. There's a there's creation of men. In fact, there's a creation of men in the Egyptian cosmology that's very similar to the to the one in Genesis, but there's no creation of women. So that's a first really key. And so a red flag goes up and says, wait a minute, how come the Hebrews have a story about the creation of woman? Okay. Second. The story about the creation of woman is seven times more material than the story of the creation of man. So something is happening here that's really important. Okay. Third, the creation of woman's story contains royal language. The, the words that are used are used later in scripture to talk about royalty and about priestly robes and about all this stuff that's really connected to holy worship. Okay. So you don't find that with the creation of man at all. Right. And this then finally, in the creation of woman, the verbs that are used indicate a deliberate and intentional plan built around a blueprint so that God had exactly in mind what he wanted when he created the woman. When it comes to Adam, it's like, you just gather some dirt, you know, do a little breath and you get this half dirt, half, half human kind of thing, right? This uh-huh. guy, this guy, right? Even the rabbis say that the woman was the first truly human being because she came from human stock, whereas Adam came from the earth, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. the, in the, 
in the Jewish Hebrew world, there's this great regard for the way that the story of the creation of woman happens, okay? Which, by the way, I think is systematically overlooked in the Christian world, because the Christian world bases its view of women on Genesis chapter 3, not Genesis chapter 2. Let me give you a really interesting example. Have you been to the Sistine Chapel, really famous chapel? I I know of it, but no, I haven't been out. So most people go to the Sistine Chapel, you know, they're, they look up and they see those fabulous uh, paintings by Michelangelo and, you know, the very famous painting where God's finger and, and Adam's finger and the spark of life, right? And they think, oh, that's the epitome of Michelangelo's work, okay? But what they don't realize is that that's not in the center of the ceiling. Hmm. The, the picture in the center of the ceiling, in the exact center uh, lengthwise and widthwise, in the exact center is the creation of the woman, wow. not the creation of Adam. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Michelangelo was influenced by his. I'm I'm convinced by his understanding of the Jewish scriptures, and he realized that it was the woman that was the coup de gras, the woman that was the magnum opus of God's work, not the man, right? So, so he paints that picture in the center of the room. Right? Wow. Yeah. And we oh, don't see that very often. No, no, no. So you go on, go to Google and, and pull up a picture of the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And you will see that the picture in the center is God bringing the woman out of the side of man. That's, that's the center of the picture. And it's wow. the center of the Genesis text. Because what it does is it says that there's this creature that God creates by blueprint, by specificity, that has an, an intimate connection with him in order to act as the signal to the man. Right? That's the basically the thesis of my book is the reason that the woman is the guardian angel is because God needed to put a physical representative of humanity in front of the man so that he would have a way of knowing, am I on track or not on track? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense, I think, especially being married. I, I probably wouldn't have understood that before I was married, but but it's a shame that we don't learn that kind of thing, you know, when we're going through all that premarital counseling and understanding yeah. our positions in the marriage, but also in the way that God created us to be. We can't, yeah. can't change, you know, the old saying, a leopard can't change its spots or whatever, but, you know, we, we really can't change what the Lord has put in us and created us to be. And, and I know in my own marriage, you know, I, it's exactly what you say. When I see that my husband is, is doing and growing closer to the Lord, it, it makes, it brings me into him. Yes. But when I see that he, he's ignoring something major that the Lord has either, you know, told us to do, or it causes conflict. It it causes conflict between us because I'm trying to remind him of this is what the Lord said though. And he's like, but no, I think we need to do this. I mean, you know, I'm just giving a simple example, but, but we've had times like that. No, no, but that simple example is really important because one of the things I say in my book is that women intuitively know this. They may not be able to articulate it, which is why I wrote the book, but they know that there's something, what you know, what we call women's intuition, which I believe is really a spiritual radar that says, okay, wait a minute, I, 
I can see something about a relationship that I might not be able to specify, but I right. feel it there. Okay. And, and the problem, of course, is that men work on principally, you know, rational discussion. And so they, so in the past, my, my wife and I would have these same conversations and she would say, you know, I just don't feel right about that. And I'd say, wait a minute, all the numbers are right. The, you know, it's the business that, and she said, no, 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 there's, it just, it just doesn't feel right to me. And what do you know? I go ahead and do it anyway. And later it's a disaster because she was right. She could feel something about it that I couldn't put into hard facts right. because I didn't listen to the red light, green light that was going on there. Right. I thought, Hey, who is she? I mean, I, she has feelings, but I have numbers. I have facts. Right. And, yeah. and it was a huge mistake because I forgot that God has equipped her to have a, a sensitivity that I don't see and on purpose, because that means that I need to rely on her to give me the guidance that I need instead of pretending that she's somehow an elevated secretary. She's actually the chairman of the board <laughs> and giving, you know, and helping <laughs> me see what I need to do. I might be the CEO, but she's the chairman of the board, right? Mm -hmm. So I need to listen to what she's saying. Now, that, that's another really interesting thing, because most of the people that read my book, women who read my book, are like, wait a minute, I already knew this. I mean, this is how I feel, right? Men who read the book are threatened to death, because what they think is, oh my gosh, if I start listening to everything my wife says, she'll want a new Mercedes, we'll have to move to a new house. And so what I've said in the book is, the whole purpose of God's creation of the woman is not to set up the relationship so that she becomes the director, but it's to set up the relationship so that she has the responsibility of only directing in terms of what God wants, yeah. not what she wants. Right. And that's the real hard part, right? Because we all want things. So, you know, you might want a better car. You might want him to have a better job. You might want to move to a new location. You might need a new refrigerator. But that's that it's God's agenda that he's poured into the woman so that her responsibility is always is this me talking or is this my relationship with God speaking through me? Right. That's a huge responsibility. See, it's easy for the man. He can just say Oh, is she getting closer or further away? Easy, right in front of me. Red light, green light. For mm -hmm. the woman, much more difficult. Mm. Because the subtlety is, what is my real agenda? And what is God's real agenda? And I'm responsible for God's agenda, which means I have to, I have to subdue and resist my agenda. Because it's always going to be there. Mm -hmm. There's always the way that I want it to go. Yes. And that's not the game, right? The game is to have enough sensitivity to know this is what God wants. Right. So, so then, of course, when I'm dealing with couples and this kind of thing, there's always the question. Somebody always raises the question: Wait a minute, someone has to make the decision, you know? And I'm like, Yeah, that's right. But until you come to an agreement, no decision can be made because you cannot make an individual decision in a mutual relationship. Right. Or, so right. you just so for men that's very difficult because you just have to put things on hold and postpone until you come to an agreement. Yes. Right? That's so true. It's so true. 
my mind swirls with all the things I think of in my own marriage, of course. And, and just even spiritually, you know, when we first married and, and going on that first cruise and stuff and, and just like, just even having the feeling that this couple, you know, they were believers in, in Jesus. And it's like, they're Christians, Mike. And he's like, how do you even know that? Like what they're just people like, what is even, I don't even get it. I don't even know why you think that. And he goes, what? Because they said a prayer at dinner or something. And I'm like, oh no, it's, it's more just like, I feel Jesus. I feel Jesus there <laughs> when we're together. I feel that he's there. And he just did not understand that for the life of me. And it didn't matter how I tried to explain it. It just, he didn't get it. And then finally he just started trusting me. You know, yeah. and I think that's what, what you're saying. It finally became a trust. And, that, and that's the key, right? At some point, he realizes, hey, I don't have that kind of sensitivity. It's not built into me, but it is built into you. And so therefore, I have to trust you to tell me what I'm missing in my lack of sensitivity to the issue, right? And that takes you right to Proverbs 31, where it says, a man will trust in his wife and it will be a blessing to him. That's the only time that that verb, batach, is used in scripture for a positive relationship between two human beings. It's always used about trusting God, right? I can trust God implicitly because I know he always has my benefit in mind, right? Even if it's chastisement, it's still my benefit, right? But the only time that scripture uses that verb for a positive relationship between human beings is husband and wife. And it basically says, husbands, pay attention, you need to trust your wife like you trust God. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a difficult thing to do because, you know, we're not brought up that way in the West. We're brought up with this idea that the wife is the helpmate. She's one there to make sure that my plans happen. She's I'm going to enlist her for all of the things that I can't get done that she needs to do for me. Oh, We've yes. got all that going, right? And in addition, we have the Catholic override that says women are second-class citizens in the church. They shouldn't teach. They shouldn't preach. They're not allowed to do this. They're not allowed to do that. I mean, we've reread all of the scripture to fit the agenda of male dominance. And unfortunately, it's destroyed the relationship that women were supposed to have with their men and really undermined, in my in my thinking, undermined the whole development of Western civilization. It's It's been the cause of all kinds of problems because we haven't allowed women to have a voice, to have a significant, recognizable, and authoritative voice in the culture. And maybe we're finally going to get there. But. Maybe. But I, I know. I mean, it is a very tough thing for men to wrap their brains around. But 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 even even in our own marriage, I mean, and I, I go back to that because I don't I don't want to sound like I'm putting men down any any way. We I think it's more recognizing the gifts that God has given men as men and God has given women as women. And it's important in a marriage to understand those gifts and understanding your husband's gifts, you know, because my husband's very good financially. He's very yeah, good absolutely. logically and making decisions like that. And, yeah. but it's allowing us both to use our gifts as men and women within the marriage. Yeah. And the important thing is that the man has to allow the woman to exercise the spiritual 
connection that was built into her. You know, uh, one of the things I, I make a point in the book about the fact that Hebrew words often have multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. So the word for male, M-A-L-E, is zakar, which is also the verb for to remember. Remember. Okay. And this is really important because it's not an accident. It's an it's intention that the role of the man in relation to God is to remember, to remember what God said, to remember his instructions, to remember his commands and to pass those on to his children because he's going to teach them, the, the boys in the house, to remember what God says. That's the whole thing, right? Right. right. Is, what does Moses say? Look, when, you, when you're at home, when you pass through your gate, when you go through the door, when you walk on the road, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to give instruction in Torah. You're supposed to remember what happened so that you can pass it on, okay? But that's not the word for female. Right. The word for female is nekava. And the only place that that shows up is in the basically the necklace, the band, the the band that goes around the neck, right? So it gives you the impression that the that the female acts as the fence, the boundary, the border, the necklace, right? And so my argument is, man is to remember everything God says, and the woman is is there to remind the man that there's a borderline, and you can work inside the fence, but don't step over it, mm. right? It's like God says, here's the border. What you do inside the fence is up to you. But this fence says when you step outside the fence, you're in trouble because now the woman is going to remind you, wait a minute, that's not what God said. <laughs> right? Right, right. Call you back inside the fence. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is actually the whole story of Genesis chapter three is about the borderline. That's all. Mm-hmm. And, and the role that the woman plays, the role that the man plays. And so it- if, if we just understood that kind of stuff, we'd be a lot better off because we would recognize that those fundamental stories in Genesis 2 and 3 really set the stage for the way a male-female relationship is supposed to work. And I, I just would want to make one other point. Sure. Because a woman has this built-in sensitivity, this radar for God, mm-hmm. it does not mean that a woman needs to become a man in order to have uh, you know, authority. Right. I mean, one of the several of the critics of my book have said, oh, he's just a disguised feminist. They couldn't be more off target because I don't expect women to become men. I don't expect women to act like men, to do what men do, to think like men, to have the same jobs on and on. No, the male is designed to remember what God said, instruct in what God said, and basically sit in the city gates. In other words, have a political involvement in the community that steers it toward God. I don't see that as the role for women. And I don't think it diminishes women to say, oh, you don't play that role. Because what the woman, the role the woman plays, would no man could do what he's supposed to do without the influence of the woman who really is the spiritual, as I said in my book, the spiritual guide for the relationship. She's the, conne- the direct connection mm-hmm. to the feelings that God has put into the relationship so that she has the sensitivity necessary for the man to modify what he thinks he should do on the basis of what she's telling him she feels that God is directing. Mm-hmm. And if I don't 
If I don't do that, then I'm going to march down the road as though I'm the one who's making all the decisions and you're just tagging along or you're there to assist me, or I'm going to resist what my wife says, because after all, I'm the one in charge and I've missed entirely the whole point of the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really, really important. Yes, it is. And Again, there's like so many things going through my mind, but um, you bring up so many good points. But the one that I think of in in uh, even Revelation towards the end, it might be 21 or 22. But but when right when John sees the bride, it's basically the walls of Jerusalem. He goes, she, he said, let me show you the bride, the bride of Yeshua. And it up comes these walls of Jerusalem that's around the temple, I guess, or something. And, and uh, I forget exactly how it's worded now, but, but I think that's what you're kind of describing. It's that, that fence or that, that wall. Do you agree? It's, it's yeah. like that. Yeah. It, it's basically a protective boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and what's really interesting is, so think about the passages in Jeremiah where he talks about the new covenant, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, that's cl- clearly Jesus is referring to the the Jeremiah passage when he says this is the new covenant in my blood, right? Because that's the only place where the new covenant shows up. It's it's hadash. It means the renewed covenant. It's like the new moon. It's not brand new. Right. It's the same moon seen in a different way. Okay. In that same prophetic passage, he says, "Oh, look what's look at this amazing! In the millennial age, a woman will surround a man. Hmm. There it is. She provides the border." that the man works inside of, right? A woman will surround a man. What is he, what's he describing? The millennial age. In the millennial age, it will be absolutely clear that the role of the woman is to circumscribe the actions of the man. It's to fit him within the boundary that she has this radar connection to God. Mm. And so it's awesome. Right. And the man can be, Compared to the priest, because he's the one who remembered the words of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, once I think once you see that, as I've said to, to many audiences when I've lectured about this, I, I didn't write this book for us. I mean, look, I've already made all the mistakes possible. Right. So my relationship has been damaged over and over and over because I didn't pay attention to what was happening there 25 years ago when I didn't know what was going on. I was just, you know, learning from the church, prophet, priest and king. Oh, wow. Look at me. right? Right. Okay. So the damage has happened, but the damage will continue until parents today realize what was happening in the Genesis two and three story and start teaching their children to recognize this essential relationship that makes a marriage really spiritually work, mm-hmm. right? And until we until we get our children on board, the damage is just going to repeat itself. I wrote this book mm-hmm. for my kids, mm-hmm. right? And fortunately, my youngest son has has really understood this, and his marriage he actually walked away from an engagement because. He recognized that the, that the necessary spiritual connection wasn't there for the, for the, uh, the potential bride Mm -hmm. to act as the boundary, right? And so he said, I can't, I can't go through with this marriage. I mean, everybody in the family was like, oh yeah, but you love her and she loves you and you. And he said, no, this isn't going to work because it has to be on God's terms. And now he's, 
He is since married and they have a little child and they have a fantastic relationship because they understand how they play to how they mutually fit, right? It's it's I mean it makes me feel wonderful I'm because sure. yeah, it's really cool. And by the way, he's a therapist in married in marriage oh, really? and family therapy. So, so he's bringing all this That's stuff awesome. into the into his you know therapy practice. So it's really cool. That is that is good. You're right. I mean, you know, my three children aren't married, and I get excited about being able to teach this to my boys. You know, and help yeah. them understand because yeah. they've seen the mistakes that their dad and I have made. They've they you know they've seen the pain and the rejection feelings and and all of that that has come out of I'm the boss. I'm the one that needs to make the decisions. I'm the one, you know, and, and again, and I think when you talk about, um, there was another article I read of yours that ties in with this because you talk about the prince and the king and where the prince, like in Prince of Peace, you were talking about Isaiah, but when the prince is a type of word that says, I want you to make me this king i want i put you in that position is that is that how you explain it i don't think you would explain it that way but but the way i understood it is that's the position that the wife puts her husband in and agrees to come under his authority yeah yeah so there's a really good point that's a really good point because often you find people using paul's analogy about um the uh, woman is the glory of man man is the glory of you know of god all like that that analogy and Mm -hmm. they use it they misconstrue that analogy. If they really thought about it, what they would realize is that the that analogy says that the woman is the is the very best of the man, right? So because what does it say? The woman is the glory of man, right? It's, it's somehow like, wait a minute, uh, that means that I that I need to have her as my you know as my assistant or servant. No, it's exactly the opposite. And more importantly, if I look at the other analog, the other analogies that Paul uses, I can see that what he's saying is just as the woman came out of the man, so the man has, so the woman has the power to put, to put herself in a, in a role that elevates the man, but she's the one who has the power, not him. He can't decide you're, you know, you're going to be under me. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, that works across the board, whether spiritually or not. I might be a slave, right? I might be owned by the master, but I will never make the master my dominant um, king until I submit to him. I can be a resistant slave my entire life. And in fact, that's what we find within most cultures, that if uh, somebody dominates another and puts them into a slavery role, they fight back, mm-hmm. which means that they haven't released that power. They retain it, even if it costs them their lives. So what God is saying is, isn't it great that the Zirkonegdo, who is designed with this special kind of relationship to God, with this, this spiritual radar, is also asked to put herself in a role where she allows, she allows, the husband to act in his, in the way that he should all the time coaching the behavior, you know, coaching the decisions so that they follow the pathway that God, you know, has created in this relationship. So it's, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, you know, half of the book is, okay, let's look at all this stuff that the church has done in right. interpreting Paul and reread it from a Jewish perspective. And what you discover, of course, is that, you know, Paul's right in line with the Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 passages. Right. And he isn't trying to teach something different. Mm-mm. It's I know. just a shame that the church didn't, fought, didn't, the church, you oh. know, for, for most of the Christian world, uh, the Bible begins with the with the Gospel of John. I know it doesn't start. It doesn't start in Genesis. It starts with the you need to be saved, mm-hmm. right? right? So what we need to do is go back and say, well, wait a minute. Before you can be saved, you need to understand who you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that starts with the Genesis passage. Yeah, and so. what do we see happening in our world? Identity problems throughout. <laughs> Identity yeah. problems within the marriage, identity problems within the church, identity problems within the family. I mean, because we don't start back in Genesis to who, what is male and what is female and what are their roles. And they're both divine roles. They're both meaningful roles. But instead, yeah. we subjugate others yeah. and, and just make others feel they're less important. Yeah, in the modern woke culture, the, one of the fundamental strategies is to unhook the notion of identity from genetics mm-hmm. and from religion and from social expectation. If I can do that, then I can define my identity any way that I want. Right. And as soon as that happens, I have nothing but chaos yes. because it will undermine the fabric of what it means to have a society that's cohesive, right? right? All I have is societies that are that are made up of individuals that hate each other right and so there's a deliberate strategy there to unhook the kind of identity uh religious and political identity that goes on in the genesis text which is fundamental to western civilization Mm -hmm. right if i can get rid of that then i can bring the society down Mm -hmm. so it's even more important that we understand what's happening in genesis 2 and 3 because the you know those stories, uh, whether they're whether they're history or not, isn't the issue. Right. The issue is, do they teach the kind of values that make society possible? Mm-hmm. And if you could just remove all of the Christian overlay that were, you know, the the result of the Catholic Church treating women as second class citizens, if you could just go back and look at what's actually happening in the Genesis text, you'd realize. But those are the fundamentals of any society. It, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Jewish, Christian, or Islamic. If you don't have those kind of fundamentals in place, the society is destined for collapse. Yes, it is. Well, yeah. that was a lot of good stuff, and I appreciate it. And I, it, and I, you know, when people ask me where do I start, where do I start reading the Bible, I say Genesis. <laughs> Like, go back to the beginning. Yeah. It's where. It's yeah, but I said. wouldn't want that. You know, but I wouldn't send them to Genesis with any of the English texts because right. the problem is that they won't see the depth of it. I, I would, if you're going to, and I, uh, you're right, you have to start with Genesis because it's the fundamental of the rest of the Bible. As I've said, if you don't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you'll mis- misunderstand the whole rest of the Bible. Right. But you need to understand it. As we started this conversation, we need to understand it from the depth of the author and the audience when it was written. Mm -hmm. And that takes some serious work. So, you know, go jump on my website and start looking at that. That's right. Over 9,000 words. (laughs) Start learning. (laughs) And you can, if you're interested in any of this, 
you know, any more depth in any of this stuff, you can always go to, you know, skipmoen.com and search any of these verses. And if there's something there, then it'll help you understand what was really going on when the authors wrote the stuff. Right. And you can subscribe and get a word a day in your mailbox. Yeah, that's right. There's no subscription fee. It's just based on donation. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but there's lots of material there that you can um, purchase or review. And of course, if you're on the website, you can search any of the 9,000 word studies without fee. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully you'll find them useful enough so that you will donate and keep them going. But they are, they are good. And yeah, and please don't buy his books on Amazon. Buy them on his website because... um, that benefits you and supports your website so yeah and amazon keeps 65 percent of the money oh i know i'm an author (laughs) actually so i get a dollar a book when amazon sells my book so that's uh (laughs) nothing (laughs) so i understand thank you so much and um, i so appreciate all your wisdom and and um taking the time we're like I think five hours difference in our time zone so um, I appreciate you just being here and talking about your book Guardian Angel and check out his other books and I'll leave I'll leave links for all of that so thank you so much I appreciate Great. it and if you want to do it again sometime I'd be happy to do that oh that'd be awesome because I know we could start okay. on a whole new subject <laughs> okay thank you all right, thank you Stephanie bye 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 I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find me at graftedjewishroots.com. Please check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews, on my website. And I also have a Facebook page under the same name. Join me every Wednesday for a new episode of Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. Thank you for listening.